Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. We first address some common misnomers regarding the study, discuss a little bit about what syphilis is, talk about how the study got started and the initial beginnings of it, some of the deceptive practices that took place during it, and then we slowly get into the unraveling of the study. This is part one of two episodes, so make sure that after you're done with this, you go and listen to part two. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so I just found out right before we hit the record button here that we're going to be talking about the Tuskegee syphilis study. And I had told Garen and Katina, Katina laughed at me, because all I had ever heard of was the Tuskegee Airmen. And then you guys told me that there was no correlation between the two, or at least not. Yes, I laughed at you. So let's talk about what this is, because is this a study? Is it a place? Was Tuskegee a place? What's, let, let's, let's dive in. So that's actually the first thing I need to address, is that the name of the study is a misnomer. That we call it, and it has commonly come to be known as the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, which puts the blame on Tuskegee Institute for what happened. Which Tuskegee is a black institute that was founded by Booker T. Washington and trained black people in the South in uh, it was one of the only advanced educational opportunities that black people in the South had at that time. And the blame was placed on Tuskegee, but the reality is that it was the public health service, the PHS, that was behind the study completely. And the public health service has now been rolled into the CDC. So it's federal government health agency that's now part of the CDC. So if anything, it should be called the CDC or the PHS syphilis study because they were the ones who were really behind it and pushing it. And we'll talk later in the episode about how they deliberately set Tuskegee Institute up as the front for the study, both in order to, you know, for public relations and to be able to defend the study and because they thought that that would make it more likely that black people would trust the study. But it was really the public health service that was behind it. Okay. Everything, the way that you just worded that makes it sound like this is really bad. It, it gets pretty bad. Okay. So, so let's I, get I don't know anything about That's why I'm saying that. I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not even sure if you're saying a study, but I don't even know what to... Really yeah, expect. and just a, it, Tuskegee Institute is a college. It's a university. It's one of the historically black colleges and universities, HBCU. Where mm-hmm. is it? In Alabama. Yeah. So the study was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. That was like the full name. But that's not what the men who were in the study knew the study as. 
For them, it was called the Tuskegee Medical Research Study. Hmm. And the reason why it went by a different name for the participants is because they were not told that they had syphilis. It was the longest-running non-therapeutic experiment in the history of medicine. It began in 1932, and more than 600 men were ultimately recruited into the study. The men who were recruited were not told that they had syphilis. They were instead told that they had bad blood, which back then was a general name that was used for any kind of unknown medical mm. problem. Yeah. You think in, in modern times, we can diagnose the vast majority of illnesses. So we don't have like a catch-all term like they had to have back then when medicine was less advanced. But back then, bad blood was kind of a catch-all for something's wrong with you, we don't really know what. So they were told they had bad blood and they were told that they would be treated through this study. And they ultimately were not treated. And not only that, but they were deliberately prevented from receiving treatment. And the authors or the architects of the study wanted them to not have treatment because they wanted them to die of syphilis. And one of them actually said in a quote that they were cadavers that had been identified while they were still alive. Oh my God. So that's kind of the intro. We're going to go back up and kind of walk through this. Okay. So the first thing you need to know is a little bit about syphilis. Syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease that if left untreated can lead to blindness, heart trouble, insanity, stroke, and death. The way syphilis works is typically when someone gets infected, they'll initially get a rash and then it'll go away and become latent and really nothing much will happen. And then in about a third of the time, it'll just go away permanently. About a third of the time, it'll stay latent and a third of the time, it'll come raging back and can become deadly and kill people. And so the study wanted to know what was going on with that last third. And they wanted to understand better why it sometimes goes away. And so that was like the question that they were trying to address. At the time of the study, there were some early forms of treatment for syphilis, but the forms of treatment were basically like chemotherapy. They would take metals like mercury and they would ingest those, hoping to kill the syphilis before they killed the person. And sometimes those treatments could be successful and actually could get rid of the syphilis, but they didn't work all that well, and they had lots of bad side effects, as you might imagine. And so there wasn't an effective and safe treatment that existed when the study started. But then what we're going to see is that an effective treatment did come along, and that kind of changed the dynamic. One other thing to note is just the way, and, and we see this play out in our day today, the way that the people in those times like to blame other populations for syphilis. Part of the reason for the study is that the white population was painting syphilis as if it was a problem that the black population was bringing to their city, to their sure. area. So they, they would call it like the Negro disease. And that fit into a larger pattern of something that happens all over the world. I'm going to read a quote of this from a syphilis historian who says that the French called it the Spanish disease, the English and the Italians called it the French disease, the Russians called it the Polish disease, the Polish called it the Turkish disease, the Turkish called it the Christian disease, the Tahitians called it the British disease, in India it was called the Polish disease, and in Japan it was called the Chinese pox. Hmm. I mean, this kind of reminds me of you know, like the whole thing with the China virus and trying to attach racial blame to viruses that don't fall, like they ignore racial categories, the viruses themselves. And there's no 
kind of moral culpability in if a virus springs up from one population or another. It's, it's just kind of random. The virus uses people to multiply itself. It doesn't. But in this quote, you see how each group wanted to place the blame on some other group for what was happening, which that blame shifting is harmful because it stokes racism. It also just keeps people from actually being responsible for taking whatever measures they need to in order to reduce the spread of a disease. Because if you're just blaming others for it, then you're taking it off of your own plate to, to do something to, to make it better. And that racial blame partially was the internal justification for how they set up this study. So getting into it, the story starts, we'll, we'll go all the way back to 1930. Okay. So this is during Jim Crow and it's in the South. So, I mean, that's the setting, kind of bring all that to mind. Dr. Oliver Wanger was a white doctor in the South, and the Public Health Service sent Wanger to Alabama, and he organized what was originally supposed to be an eight-month-long study of syphilis in the Negro males in Malcolm County. So the study ultimately went on for, what, 40 years? But it was initially just going to be an eight-month study at a time when effective treatment didn't exist. Wanger teamed up with Dr. Talia Farrell Clark, who was a Public Health Service officer and advisor to the Rosenwald Fund. That was the early source of funding that they were pursuing. But the Rosenwald Fund actually backed out of funding the study when they realized it was only going to be black participants. They were concerned that that would make it seem to Southerners like syphilis was primarily a problem for the black population, and they disagreed with that, so they didn't want to fund it. Well. Dr. Wanger and Dr. Clark quickly found camaraderie, and they unified behind a desire to save the study from being canceled. So they visited Alabama to meet with a Dr. Jim Baker. And after Dr. Baker heard their plans, he laid out a few concerns with it. He told them that the study wouldn't work if no treatment was offered whatsoever, because earlier, initially, it was just going to be a research study. They weren't going to offer any treatment. And so then they kind of agreed to maybe offer a little bit of treatment to some of the men. Dr. Baker's concern was not that it was going to be wrong towards these black participants not to treat them, but he was worried that some of the landowners, the planters, because this was like sharecropping system, and he was worried that the planters who were basically slave master light, if you've heard us talk about sharecropping, it was a very oppressive system. And he was worried that these men would be upset if they found out that their sharecroppers were in this study and not receiving any form of treatment. Right. So they wanted to appease them by offering some kind of minimal treatment. And so Clark agreed that some minimal treatment would be offered. And then Dr. Baker also said that they needed a sponsor, some kind of public face of the study that would be a little bit more palatable. So they decided to pursue an approach to Tuskegee University. So Booker T. Washington, like we said, had founded it in 1881, and it provided a world-class education in medical and industrial arts to African-Americans in the South. Initially, it was kind of limited to medicine and industrial arts because it was in the South. There was only certain occupations that black people were allowed to pursue. Eventually, over time, more fields of study were added. But when Dr. Clark and Wenger approached Dr. Dibble from Tuskegee University and tried to talk him into letting them use the institute for the study, Dr. Dibble agreed under the understanding that it was just going to be an eight-month study. So he wasn't initially being approached with everything that the study would become. And it was at a time when there's no effective treatment. It would also employ black doctors and nurses at Tuskegee. And they said that some limited amount of treatment would be given to some of the participants. That was at least at that time the plan. So Dr. Dibble 
agreed to it and he recruited nurse Eunice Rivers, a black nurse, to be kind of the face of the study to the participants, to the men who would be recruited into it. But then right at that very infancy of the study, we start to see problems and deception that was used. And part of what you're going to see in this episode is that it just starts with these little lies that grow. It becomes more and more problematic over time. Well, I mean, already it sounds like the two guys that are starting the study don't want it to be just eight months. So in their minds, they, they're going to try and make it longer. But everyone else, like even at Tuskegee, nobody really is aware of that, even up to this point. Yeah, so I don't know at this point what their aims were, because you'll see, I think they didn't know that there would be an opportunity to lengthen the study at that time. So so I think at that point they were... They didn't know for sure, but they wanted it. But they had aims to do something bigger. And, and also they had, you can see in their correspondences with each other, and we'll get into some of that, that there was a lot of racism and white supremacy involved in their ideology from the beginning. Which I'm sure like a lot of people that are doing studies probably would like to lengthen their studies. Just in general, I would, mm-hmm. but to make a name for themselves. But if they're like, you know, overtly racist, then it's hard to know why. I yeah. guess we're going to get into that, but yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. I mean, you can have, I mean, there are plenty of people who, I mean, I think they're trying to do a study that would have had probably at some level medical benefit. Like if there's a better medical understanding of syphilis, there is a way in which that would benefit future white and black populations. And so, I think at some level wanted medical advance, but they also were willing to cross all these ethical lines to get it in a way that caused, in the end, a lot more harm than good. We'll see. We'll talk about the the fallout from the study and how much harm it caused. You can want to provide medical help to someone without respecting them as humans. Yeah, like people. It's just the people, whole argue of like, or the whole argument of you know, a lot of the really respectable jobs that are like that kind of our society would be like, oh, these are respectable and very nice jobs. It would be ignorant to think that they're not racist people that are doing those jobs. Like teachers, like I think in our society, we really appreciate and value teachers, not like actual forms of like financial and, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. But like we would say, oh, we love teachers and stuff, but we just can't assume that teachers who are basically raising generations of kids, none of them are racist, just like doctors, firefighters, policemen. Mm -hmm. Right. These are all like really respectable jobs that we can't assume that, that everybody's perfect in those. Yeah, just being a doctor doesn't mean that you're not racist. Being a Supreme Court justice doesn't mean that you're not racist. Yeah, well, even if you're in an occupation that has like philanthropy as part of maybe your initial motivation for getting into it, that doesn't undo the cultural views that you're drinking in from the people around you. And, and we'll see also, I mean, in any kind of occupation, even if there is like a philanthropic kind of side to it, human hearts are proud and we want to make a name for ourselves and there's also financial ways in which we can just get twisted over time. Well, and we know that there are disparities that exist and racism, medical racism. When we talk about Dr. James Sims, who did a lot of horrific things to black women in his gynecology, OB and gynecology research. So medicine, there have been racial or racist motivations in medicine. And that's supposed to be a very noble field, you know, caring for people, healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. People yeah. can bring their their bias, their hatred, their racism into their profession, and it drives their work. Yeah, didn't he do, he did like surgeries on enslaved women. Yes, he did. Without numbing medicine. Yeah. And, uh, to study, like yeah. just 
Mm. Totally people. cruel. Or think like the Nazis, they did medical insp- experimentation on people. And it's like those Nazi doctors, it's like, why did you get into this? There's some level of, you become a doctor because at some level you want to help, but then humans can just twist ourselves with justifications. Um, and torture people. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Sims perfected the C-section on enslaved black women with no anesthesia and several other procedures and things that he did. Mm. Horrific. Mm. So the the study, I think it was problematic right from the beginning, became more problematic over time. The very first public ad for it said, quote, free blood tests and free treatment by county health department and government doctors. You may feel well and still have bad blood. Right from the beginning, they're setting it up as if you can get tested in treatment, as if this is a treatment program. When in reality, we'll see that there was at no point really real effort for treatment. So the actual treatment that they were offering early on was aspirin. So it's not even a real treatment. It's just numbing some of the pain of some of the symptoms. Right. So it was never really aimed at treating these men. So it was deceptive right from the beginning, kept them from actually knowing what their diagnosis was right from the beginning. But then the study got worse over time, and the first really big dramatic way in which it got worse was at the end of that initial eight-month phase, they wanted to do spinal taps on the men. And the reason for this is because, like I said, syphilis can become latent. And when it's latent, it's hard to know whether the syphilis is starting to attack the brain. Because in later syphilis, when it comes raging back, it can attack the brain and cause mental symptoms. And the doctors wanted to know if it was kind of moving that direction with any of the study participants so that they could kind of study that specific, how that happens. So they wanted to know that, and to do that, they needed to do spinal taps, which is a very painful and even dangerous procedure, especially at that time. And there is no medical benefit or value to getting a spinal tap done. But that is not how they cast the spinal taps. They actually didn't say that they were going to do spinal taps. Instead, they posted a letter to the study participants. I mean, I'll read this to you and just note all the things that they're doing here. They say at the top of the letter, Macomb County Health Department, Alabama State Board of Health, and U.S. Public Health Service, cooperating with Tuskegee University, Dear sirs, some time ago you were given a thorough examination, and since that time, we hope you have gotten a great deal of treatment for bad blood. You will now be given your last chance to get a second examination. This examination is a very special one, and after it is finished, you will be given a special treatment if it is believed you're in condition to stand it. So, I mean, first of all, just building up the study with like all the medical credentials of the Mm-hmm. organizations on board. Note the fact that Tuskegee University is almost an afterthought, that the real force behind it was Macomb County Health Department, Alabama State Board of Health, and U.S. Public Health Service. And then note that they say that you've been receiving treatment for bad blood, which was a lie, that now you have your last chance to get a new, very special treatment. And this very special treatment was not a treatment at all. It was a needle that they were going to stick into their spines to draw out spinal fluid to test mm. so that they could advance science. So it was a painful procedure, a dangerous procedure, and they lied about it. So then let me also read just some of the letters, the correspondences back and forth between Dr. Clark and Dr. Vandalier about this phase of the study because they're, I mean, they're pretty damning. Vandalier was a doctor who had been brought in and he was kind of like the one on the field on site doing the work. 
doing some of the study. So in the final stages of the eight months, he wrote to Dr. Clark and said, I'm aware of the great difficulty offered in recognizing the early subjective symptoms of paresis, which paresis is when the syphilis kind of goes into the brain, in the Negro, but it seems unusual that I have failed to recognize a single early case of paresis with subjective symptoms in the 200-odd cases. Dr. Clark replied and said, I quite agree with you as to the hopelessness of recognizing mild paresis among illiterate people of such circumscribed cultural horizon. I am hopeful that the spinal fluid examinations may throw some light on this question. And then he later added, These Negroes are very ignorant and easily influenced by things that would be of minor significance to a more intelligent group. They basically were saying, You can't recognize this disease getting into their brains and causing madness because of just this baseline of, you know, they use, they dressed up the language, but these circumscribed cultural horizon. He's basically saying, uh, it's just like this racist view of they're ignorant, and so we can't recognize it, so we need to stick these needles in their brains. A racist view of their intelligence and, and fear of, of perceived inferiority. Yeah. Which, yeah. Which the reality of something that doesn't get said a lot about the study is that these men, at this time, were all sharecroppers. But one thing that we need to say is that a lot of these men went on to get education and advance their lives. A lot of them ended up going to universities. A lot of them ended up becoming... You're saying, it sounds like you're about to say, nobody got in trouble for this? Oh, we'll we'll get into that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Towards the end, okay, but, I'm glad. But you're talking about the African American. I'm man. saying the African American oh, participants. Sorry. Yeah, they initially. I mean, they're in the South at a time when education was past sixth grade was not available to most of them, and so many of them had less education, not because they were less intelligent or less able, and a lot of them went on to overcome that lack of early education to go on to do great things. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and thinking about the fact that black people didn't have access to education in the way that white people did, and education in general, most white people weren't educated because of access. But then when you think about black people not having access to education because you had to attend a school that was for black people, which were, there weren't many. And I mean, when there were, at that time, the planters would literally come to the schools when they needed more field hands, and they would just pull kids out of class. In the Fannie Lou Hamer episode, we, we talked yeah, about that, yeah. how the planners would just come and, and take kids from the class and force them to work. And they had a four-month school season. So even sixth grade education, it's like you have a shortened school year that's just put in the parts of the, the year when more field hands aren't needed. Right. So there was a lot of education that just was not available Part of the Southern Compromise was that white people conceded to giving a little bit more early education in exchange for basically excluding black people from more advanced education. Right. And Mm. so over time, there came to be some level of earlier education, and that's actually part of where our public education system in America came from. Mostly it's black people that we have to thank for that because white people had the money to privately educate their children, but black people didn't. Black people fought for education and made the case for why education was a public benefit to everyone and then won concessions along those lines. And a lot of the early arrival of the public education system was through the advocacy of of black people in the South. But at this time, there wasn't good education available to most of these men. They lived in an oppressive sharecropping system that was basically a continuation of slavery. And these doctors kind of used that. And, and you can see just their view of their patients. They had no respect for them. They're talking about them as, as backwater. And as you 
talk people down like this and fail to recognize and dignify the humanity of the people you're working with, you can see with what happens in this next phase of the story, how it becomes easy to justify more and more inhumane treatment. Exactly. So after actually about nine months, the study in that initial phase wraps up. And Dr. Vondelier says his goodbyes to everyone. The staff returned to the regular post and Vondelier returned to Washington, D.C. to the Public Health Service building to debrief with Dr. Clark. So he goes in and thinks that the study is done. But while he's there, he discovers that Dr. Clark is retiring. And so Dr. Clark wants Vondelier to replace him in his role. And Vondelier immediately, upon taking the reins, lobbies to continue the study. So then in 1932, the study is revived and the goals of the study changed. The doctors were now deliberately trying to let the disease run its course in order to study what happened. There still was no effective treatment, but they were beginning to cross more and more ethical lines. They also had a perverse incentive, a financial incentive to continue the study, and that was that in those days, the public health service was working on a test, a blood test, to determine whether people had syphilis or not. And in order to manufacture a blood test, you need blood, but syphilis is not stable in the blood. And so they used the blood from the participants in the study to develop a blood test that the public health service went on to patent and release and make a bunch of money off of. So they had a reason to want to continue the study. And Vondelier, according to his own testimony, says that everyone quickly got on board with it. Within a month of Vondelier taking over, he wrote to Dr. Wenger that he had achieved consensus with other experts that the study should be continued until eventual autopsy of the test subjects. Quote, Everyone is agreed that the proper procedure is the continuance of the observation of the Negro men used in the study with the idea of eventually bringing them to autopsy. And he went on, as I see it, we have no further interest in the test subjects until they die. As well as the earlier mentioned quote to just remind you of here that they are cadavers that have been identified while they're still alive. So the perspective changed that the, the value of the participants at that point would just be at their death in order to autopsy them and determine whether the syphilis had spread into their brains and try to figure out how the how to run its course. My God. So the the study architects knew at this point that they needed to bring the study even more closely into alignment with Tuskegee University in order to build the trust with the black participants to do the autopsy. Because autopsies at that point were not fully understood. It was a less common medical procedure to to have an autopsy. And they needed consent from the families of the participants who died. And they knew that as white government doctors, they couldn't get that. And so they pressured and worked through Tuskegee University and kind of were manipulative in order to get autopsies. And they, they helped with some of the burial expenses kind of in exchange, almost like a bribe to... Right. Get permission to do the autopsies. They also brought the medical establishment in. And you'll see a widen in this next phase of this study. It's like the study gets worse and worse at the same time that the number of people who are complicit and involved grows. So the study brought the wider medical establishment in because they knew that in order to autopsy the participants, they needed to quickly identify any that had died. So Vondelier personally spent weeks driving to health departments and hospitals all throughout Macomb County and the surrounding areas in order to recruit the whole local medical establishment to assist in identifying the men from the study who passed away so that their bodies could be quickly brought in to autopsy. 
He mentions that he heard no objections and that there was no pushback as he explained the study to in one setting after another. In 1933, they also added a control group because the initial 400 or so men all had syphilis, but then they needed to add a couple hundred men to be like a control group. So those men were added to the study at that point. And then the study just kind of ran its course for decades. They did nothing and they observed the men And as the men died, the local health departments would identify them, they would bring them in, they'd autopsy them, they'd perform their study. But something happened in 1943, about 10 years in, Dr. Heller replaced Dr. Vondelier as the director of the Division of Venereal Diseases, and in 1943, scientists showed that penicillin could be an effective treatment of syphilis. So suddenly, up until now, you only had mercury and other heavy metal treatments, which were dangerous and not very effective. And then suddenly you had a relatively safe, I mean, penicillin can cause allergic reactions in some like, I don't know, 8 to 10% or something of the people who take it. But you can easily identify that and there's ways to make that safe still. But for the vast majority of the men in the study, there was a completely safe and effective treatment now to cure them of syphilis. Yeah. But they not only didn't offer penicillin to the men at that point, but they deliberately worked to prevent the men from getting penicillin. Literally, there are stories of them identifying that there were penicillin kind of, whenever it initially was shown to be like this miracle drug that could cure a lot of diseases, penicillin was widely distributed. Local health departments would set up shop and they would just give out penicillin to people. It was a cure for a lot of different things. So it's almost like, well, you have bad blood, you don't know what's causing it, take some penicillin, see if that helps. So it was widely used and the study would find men in the study in line to get penicillin and they would pull them out of line. They approached the local medical establishments and gave them lists of the names of the men who were in the study. And it was like a do not treat list yeah. saying not to treat them with penicillin that could have saved their lives from the syphilis that ended up killing many of them. Mm. And all through that time, there's no evidence whatsoever of any objection or pushback when Dr. Heller or Vandelier decided that penicillin should be denied to the participants. There wasn't you know, a bunch of angry memos within the public health service from this widespread... There's a lot of people involved in the study at this point and a wider medical establishment that was being told, don't treat these men. And there was no public outcry, no internal outcry. So the study continued and continued, and more and more study participants died. Many of them were already a little bit older to begin with. And so by the time we get to the 1960s, the number of participants still left in the study was under 100. Some of them had died. Some of them had also just moved away, and the study had kind of lost track of them. And in 1965, you have the first real outcry that we can identify. 65? 1965. So like 30 years in, 20 years past effective medical treatment is the first time we see someone objecting to the ethics of the study. And that was from Dr. Erwin Schatz. He read of the study in a medical journal, and he wrote to the CDC and said, quote, I'm utterly astounded by the fact that physicians allow patients with a potentially fatal disease to remain untreated when effective therapies are available. If this is the case, then I suggest the United States Public Health Service and those physicians associated with it need to reevaluate their moral judgments in this regard. Hmm. Dr. Ann Yobbs was the one who, she was one of the study authors, and she's the one who received that communication. 
and when she received it, she attached a brief memo that said, quote, This is the first letter of this type we have received. I do not plan to answer this letter. She stapled that note to it, and she archived it. Dang. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Again, this is part one, so make sure to look in your feed for the second part of the Tuskegee syphilis study. We'll leave you with this quote from Jackie Robinson. Life is not a spectator sport. If you're going to spend your whole life in the grandstand just watching what goes on, in my opinion... You're wasting your life.